0: Welcome to Faith and Family, a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. And now from Greenville, South Carolina, here's your host, Steve Wood. Hello, this is Steve Wood, and welcome to Faith and Family. Thank you for joining us today as we continue our family Bible study in the Gospel of St. Luke. And we're going to be in Chapter 2, and we're going to be reading about Caesar's tax census. Did you just fill out your taxes this April? Well, this was an enrollment. It wasn't just a census. It was an enrollment so he could be taxing the citizens of the Roman Empire. Begins like this in Luke chapter 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be enrolled. This was the first enrollment when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be enrolled, each to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be enrolled with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to be delivered and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Dear Lord Jesus, we ask for your Holy Spirit to open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of your word. Amen. I've asked you to remember two really important things about Luke's writings. And remember, Luke's writings include not just the Gospel of Luke, but the book of Acts as well. I just got a book this week from an English professor who was analyzing the Gospel of Luke, and he insisted that you remember that Luke and Acts go together. That's one of the two main things I've asked you to remember as we study Luke, because some of the things we find in Acts is going to help us understand what's going on in Luke. The second thing I ask you to remember, and it's something that's gone into eclipse in the modern world, particularly in the United States, because basically Europe was going through a very turbulent time and getting rid of kings. So we came here, set up a government where there is a separation of church and state. And the notion of kingship is somewhat foreign to Americans. And so we're going to have to really work at putting that concept back into our minds. So it's a two-part work, and kingship is an important theme in the gospel. And how do we know that? Well, this English professor I just told you about said that in the ancient world, the gospel of Luke and Acts were narrated aloud in one sitting for a crowd, and they were capable of doing this. So like any good story, you see seeds of the plot development early on in Luke, but it comes to conclusion in the final page in Acts, and that's Acts 28. And what do we find in Acts 28? Paul is in a Roman jail or house arrest, but he's in chains and we find him morning till evening testifying to what? The kingdom of God. Here he is in the capital of the world. This is the Roman Empire's capital, and what is he doing? He's probably living either attached or even in some kind of uh, living arrangement near Caesar's palace, and he's testifying morning, noon, and night to the kingdom of God. He was there two whole years welcomed all who came to him, and he was preaching the kingdom of God. Repeat it again in case we miss it. And you know what happened? Well, the letter to the Philippians was written by St. Paul during this time, and you we find at the very end of his letter to the Philippians, chapter 4 and verse 22—remember, this is being written— from the capital of the Roman Empire, he goes, All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. St. Paul was converting people who were living in the palace. And in the ancient world, there was a thing called the gospel. The gospel was a word describing a royal announcement, just the same word that's used for the gospel of Luke. And the gospel of Luke is a royal announcement. And what's Luke's purpose is to declare the kingdom of God, and he's winning converts in the palace to Christ's kingship. Amazing. So here we're going to see in this passage regarding Caesar's, I would say rather heavy-handed, aggressive enrollment process. You imagine back in the ancient world, I mean, the Romans were very organized, don't get me wrong, but there were no computers to register everybody. There were no social security numbers to tag on everybody. And basically this was a very aggressive move of Caesar's dominance over the ancient world. Caesar was regarded as king of the known world, or at least he thought he was. Uh, part of his declarations, he was hailed as both a god and a savior. These are the very things that Christians claim for Jesus. Biblical scholar N.T. Wright says this very well, and it's a concise, which I say, uh, kind of cultural, political, social analysis of what was going on in the Roman Empire. Remember, this was Caesar Augustus, the heavy hand. Everybody go to your hometown where you were born to be enrolled in my tax rolls. Augustus, Caesar Augustus, was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. He became the sole ruler of the Roman world after a civil war, and he turned the Roman Republic into an empire with himself as the head. He was the king of a world empire. He proclaimed that he had brought justice and peace to the whole world. Do you remember what the angels sang to the shepherds? Peace on earth. See, you're you're having a contrasting conflict between kingships here, between this baby born in a manger and Caesar Augustus, the visible king of the world. Wright goes on to say, Augustus declared his dead adoptive father to be divine, so he called himself then Son of God, since his stepfather was a God. And people said that Augustus was the Savior of the world. Is this sounding familiar? This is exactly what we regard as the Gospels declare of Jesus. Now, N.T. Wright summarizes the point, Luke is making is clear the birth of this little boy is the beginning of a confrontation between the kingdom of God in all its apparent weakness insignificance and vulnerability and the kingdoms of the world what did mary say recorded in luke 152 he has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of low degree. That is the history in Luke, in Acts, and the entire history of Christianity. And we're living in a little bit of an unusual period of time, and I'll describe that as we go on in today's broadcast. Now, you heard N.T. Wright summarizing for you what Caesar Augustus proclaimed for himself. It was a declaration called the Gospel, And in Luke 2.10, the angel said to the shepherds, don't be afraid, I bring you good news, this is the word for gospel, a gospel of great joy, which shall come to all people, for to you born this day in the city of David, a Savior, Christ the Lord. Now, Caesar said he was the Savior of the world. Caesar said he was the Lord of the world, saying you're Caesar, saying you're Lord, saying you're king of the world. That's what lordship means. But the difference was this is in the city of David, which is also called Bethlehem. Now, what's the big deal about that? Well, the city of David was the place where God basically promised to king David that his descendant, the son of David, would become the Messiah who would become the king of the world. Now, Joseph and Mary were not living in the city of David. They weren't living in Bethlehem. They had a journey there, a very difficult journey with Mary being pregnant and all. But thanks to enrolling for their taxes and thanks to Caesar's heavy-handed tax decree, the true king of the world, was born in Bethlehem, the city of David, fulfilling the prophecy of Micah. But you, O Bethlehem, little among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth one who is to be ruler in Israel. Now, let's ask ourselves, is Jesus' kingship important in any practical way. And you might say, well, to be honest, no, if you're living in the West, particularly United States, uh, notion of kingship is just basically gone. I've shared this with before in other broadcasts, but some British comedians were, were asking, what is off limits in the United States for making jokes, for making comedies? And they knew that the royal family in England was off limits. You don't You know, you don't make uh, jokes about the queen. So what's off limits in the United States? And in all seriousness, it came back Mickey Mouse was the only thing you don't really make jokes about in the United States. Everything else is free game, including our rulers. And so the Magic Kingdom is as close to most Americans get to a notion of kingship. But this is very important stuff, very important stuff. And here's the reason why. Christianity is much more than what we commonly think of as a religion, because Christianity is a proclamation of Jesus as king, okay, king of the world, and that means that his kingship extends to every segment of human life on this planet. It doesn't simply refer to what goes on between the four walls of a church. Christ's kingship expands to schools, and I'm going to mention that again in a moment. He should be king of education, of business, sports, entertainment, family life, medicine, the arts, scientific research, government, and law. He is king of everything. Now, you might say, well, that's certainly not the way we're functioning as a society right now. I know that. And we're going to talk about the consequences of that in a minute. Let me share this with you. And this is how I see basically the big course of human history is going in the modern world. We are emerging from a kingship no man's land. OK, just imagine, uh, remember, captured a flag and you have the two sides and then you'd have that Place in the middle, no man's land, where everybody kind of, you know, jostles around for position. Well, we have gone from a world that clearly had kingship. We have also gone from a world, particularly the Western world, where we had Christendom, which meant Christ was recognized as king over all of life. Now, that's no longer the case in the modern world. I realize that. That's why I call the stage of human history we have gone through as the kingship no man's land. But hear this, in the long run, some form of kingship will be with us. And we can choose, and I'm looking into the future, it's going to be Christ or Antichrist. And I'm making a prediction here, and it's not my prediction because it's in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, and I'll mention that in a second, it's either going to be Christ or Antichrist. We're going to have a king of the world recognized. Now, it will be different from perhaps what we saw in the Middle Ages or in the ancient world. I would predict that the kingship we're going to see in the future will be an enthronement of humanity where where humanity recognizes itself as divine and essentially end up in self-worship. The very worst form of idolatry isn't those things which God hates, like worshiping images of stone or whatever, or wood or whatever they make idols out of. The worst form of idolatry is the one that has the 72-point font for the first letter of the word idolatry. I, Self-worship is the essence of idolatry and revolt against God, and that's what we call an apostasy. An apostasy is falling away from something. Now, we have gone through a course of history where we've kind of done away with kings and queens in most cases to at least ruling in any significant way, and that's really caused the kingship of Christ to go into eclipse. And you live in that situation, you regard it as normal. I'm saying it's not normal. There's this conflict in history since this account in Luke chapter 2 with this baby in a manger. There's going to be a conflict between the kingdoms of the world and the kingship of Christ. And You might say, well, how come I've never heard of this? Um, Nobody talks about it's any big deal. We're coming up at some point in the future to an extreme conflict. And the reason you haven't heard of it, if you happen to be living in the United States, and don't ask me who did this, because whoever did deserves to be fired. In the lectionary in the United States, the supreme passage for... The assertion when man proclaims himself to be God, that's a person called the man of sin or the Antichrist, is deleted, and it begins in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse three. And the readings for the United States cover 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses one, two, and only half of verse three. When it talks about the falling away in the second half of verse 3, it's gone, and it's interesting that in the two critical passages where man proclaims himself to be God, see, this is the essence of the conflict of the kingdoms between is Christ the Savior of the world, the King of the world, and He is he the true Son of God or is some man— The Catechism of the Catholic Church, sections 675 and 677, explicitly warn the faithful about this and give reference to this entire passage in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that's deleted from the lectionary readings in the United States. So culturally— the only thing you have to work on is the magic kingdom. And there's no reference for earthly kings to kind of uh, transition to the idea of Christ King and the idea of a phony baloney king coming called the Antichrist. We're not hearing the warnings. For instance, if you set foot in a psychology class in most universities in the United States, you are setting foot in a religion class because... Religion properly understood, false religion or true religion, it's not confined to your prayer closet or the four walls of a church. One of the best books describing modern psychology is by Dr. Paul Witz, a Catholic psychologist, and his book is entitled Psychology as Religion The Cult of self-worship. And I'm just picking on one little thing going on that's perhaps unnoticed, except for great guys like Dr. Paul Witts, where you're going in and studying psychology. You're thinking, hey, I'm learning how to help people. And what you're really teaching people how to focus on self, to the ultimate form of idolatry and being sucked in to a future deception. Because that passage that has been deleted from the lectionary readings in the United States, that passage which is also footnoted in the Catechism of the Catholic Church with warns of this, that passage says that this deception is gonna come on heavy. It's going to lead astray those who are having pleasure in unrighteousness. You're having a good time doing your own thing, because if you're God, you can make up the rules. Forget the Ten Commandments. This is where our world is going. So I would just say what where we are right now in history, we're emerging from the kingship no man's land into the realm of apostasy falling away from the kingship of Christ. And what does that mean? Well, that means that everybody starts doing their own thing, and it seems great for a while, but what happens if that takes the form of, say, merging into our government and laws? What would happen? Well, I can give you a very clear picture of what would happen. He you said, know, Oh, this is never going to happen here in the USA. Well, let me tell you this. What I'm warning about did happen to our immediate neighbor, Mexico, less than 100 years ago. And it's a clear preview of what could happen worldwide. You noticed in the papers, there's a lot of talk about socialism, particularly our young people through education, which is outside of the kingship of Christ so often. And socialism sounds good, and socialism took root in Mexico. And in reality, it was communism, atheistic communism. And I'm not saying every naive socialist is a communist, but it can certainly lead to that. And this is how it came down in Mexico, where it's direct an explicit persecution of the Catholic Church and the Catholic priesthood and education because the Revolutionary Party was wise enough to recognize that education makes a difference. And this is what teachers were required to swear in Mexico less than 100 years ago. I, and you put your name, before the Federal Board of Education solemnly declare without any reservation whatsoever to accept the program of the socialist school and to be its propagandist and defender. I declare myself an atheist, an irreconcilable enemy of the Roman apostolic Catholic religion, and I will exert my efforts to destroy it, releasing the conscience from every religious worship, and be ready to fight against the clergy in whatever field it may be necessary, unquote. Mexico, less than 100 years ago, and this was just an education. You weren't a teacher if you didn't line up with a state that fought against the kingship of Christ. Because what were the opponents of this revolutionary, socialistic, communist country? It was a group that had a motto, Viva Christo Rey. Long live Christ the King. Now, you might say, Whew, well, that's Mexico. The U.S. would never go for it. Ah, our president, Calvin Coolidge, the 30th president of the United States, supported that revolutionary government that was torturing and murdering Catholics just south of the border. The reason was we needed the oil from Mexico, so the oil would flow—money—he basically sold out the Catholics in Mexico. If you want to see a movie of what happens when Christ's kingship goes into eclipse and the state begins to take the role of Christ himself, get that DVD— for greater glory. There's a boy in that movie, Jose Sanchez del Rio. He was only 14 years old. Guess what happened to him? He was thrown in jail for a couple of weeks and they wanted him to renounce his faith, but he stood firm. So after two weeks of being in jail, didn't break his resolve, they turned up the pressure on him and they cut the bottom of his feet. A 14-year-old boy, again, this was sold down the river by the government of the United States. They cut the bottom of his feet and forced him to walk around town, and he didn't deny his faith. So they cut him again, and he was bleeding in several places. And so they repeated their offer, and here's what their offer was. We will spare your life if you shout, death to Christ the King. You see, sometimes the enemies of the church know what we should be believing more accurately than we do in the church. Death to Christ the King. And of course, he didn't deny Christ the King, and they stabbed him several times and finally shot him. But as he was dying, he traced the sign of the cross on the ground with his finger, and he spoke his last words, for everyone to hear. Viva Cristo Rey. Long live Christ the King. Now, I'd like to ask you a question, Mom and Dad. Would your children do this? Would they know why they would need to confess Christ's kingship? Do they know that ever since? Christ was in the manger and Caesar got the holy family in Bethlehem, the city of David, the great king, that Christ's kingship has been in conflict with the kingdoms of this world? Would they have any idea of that? Would they be willing to stand for the kingship of Christ, even if it meant torture and death? Or do they know that? And let me just ask a big one, because we have these great hymns at Easter, but What does Easter have to do with Christ's kingship? Well, Paul wrote a letter to the first Catholics, to the first Roman Catholics, living in Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire, and he said this, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, set apart for the gospel. And what does gospel mean in that first century? A royal proclamation. The gospel of God, which he promised beforehand, the gospel concerning his son, who was descended from David. Who was David again? The great king and designated son of God. This is the exact declaration that Caesar Augustus claimed for himself, but he was designated son of God, the true son of God. Why? By his resurrection from the dead jesus christ our lord and through him we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations if you confess with your lips jesus is lord saint paul says later in that epistle you will be saved we confess jesus is savior and forget that he's lord it's time for a switch I'm Steve Wood, your host, and you've been listening to episode 230 of Faith and Family. Faith and Family is a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. Visit us online at dads.org to order copies of Faith and Family broadcasts and to learn more about Catholic family life.